You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. Welcome to the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You are joined by thousands of photographers listening to this show who are all on the same journey to master their photography. I am Brent Bergherm, the host for this show, and this time I will be joined by a few listeners as this is a special call-in show. First up, we have Aaron Carr. Aaron, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Brent. How are you doing today? Doing well. Glad to have you here, and I'm looking forward to addressing these topics with you. What we're looking at is you had a question on cityscape images. Go ahead and kind of fill in the details as it relates to what the what the nature of your issue is that you want to talk about. Uh, there was a couple of things I wanted to talk about today, Brent. Um, the first thing was dealing with haze and smog and things like that when you're taking uh, skyline pictures. Uh, many of the cities that I've been to, unfortunately, are, are very hazy or in like a maritime environment where we have a lot of uh, moisture in the atmosphere. The other part to that is I don't necessarily, when I've been to these cities, I haven't necessarily had control over the time of day when I can take those pictures. So that can really impact um, how much that haze or whatever is uh, impacting your photograph. Yeah, for sure. And and then the uh, the second part of the question is what uh, what kind of f-stop do you recommend for taking skyline pictures? Like right. I like I, I mentioned in the uh, in the on the Facebook page, I usually try to use um, f-stop f8 to 11 somewhere in there just to try to get the best uh, depth of field. But uh, I'm not sure if I'm in the ballpark or, you know, where I'm at with that. Sure. No problem. That's uh, that second one, actually, I think is a slightly easier one to tackle. So I think we're going to go ahead and go with that route, uh, go with that one first. And what I would say on the lens settings, pretty much the rule of thumb is no matter which lens you're using, anywhere between F8 and F11 is what we would consider your sweet spot for that lens. And that is what I mean by that is that's the best balance between depth of field and getting sharpness that way. And also you're not going so far down uh, the, the aperture so that you cause uh, this phenomena called diffraction to start coming in. And so when you stop down to F22, sometimes our lenses go down to F29, F32, something like that. When we have that coming in with it, that small of of an aperture, what you're dealing with is you get a, a greater sense of this diffraction and that's where the light starts to scatter just because it's been right. so choked off and we don't want to uh, soften our images so much. We can look at it and say, well, the my depth of field calculator says, well, it's going to be, you know, everything's in focus, but it just feels soft. Well, that, that's the the softening that's happening with the, with the diffraction. So if okay. we can get in that area of F8, somewhere in there, doesn't really matter because you're looking at cityscapes too, right? And, right? and so you're probably really, really far away. So you're focusing at infinity anyway. And so depth right. of field actually isn't an issue. It's just about getting that sharpest uh, spot, that sharpest performance out of the lens, whichever lens you have. And again, this is, you know, it would require testing for any specific lens. It's just a rule of thumb, F8, F11, somewhere in there. Is there like an ISO setting I should be looking, looking, using? I generally try to use, you know, 100, 200 in those areas, but should I, should I be, you know, going up to 400 or 800 or? 
Yeah, I say it kind of depends on the camera that you have, but in general, your 100 to 400 range is usually going to give you really good results. It's all about the digital noise. That's that's your biggest problem you're going to have when you start increasing that in increasing the ISO. You're going to have digital noise, and depending on your subject, as we increase ISO, especially past 400 for most cameras, we do start to decrease slightly our dynamic range that's capable to be recorded. Okay. And so that would be the difference between the brights and the darks and, and whatnot. So we're definitely at our best performance when we get to the what we call the native ISO on the camera. Uh, which okay. specific camera are you shooting? I have a Nikon D3200. Okay. I'm, a, I'm, at the, I'm at the very, very bottom end there. Sure. And that's still, I would certainly characterize that as a capable camera. There's nothing that I would say, oh, you know, your camera sucks or anything like that. That's, that's not right. the point of anything I would say, anything close to it. It comes in, it's about the, just the overall fact that it is it is slightly older. It's a crop sensor. When you add those two together, digital noise does start to become an issue. So it's just depending on what your tolerance is for that digital noise. I would always recommend decreasing that. But being that you mentioned you don't necessarily always have the time to plan to be there at the best times of day, that probably tells me you probably don't have the time to take a tripod as well. Um, no, actually, I, I carry, I actually keep one in the back of my car. So I always okay. have, it, um, to, so that I can, um, nice, but it's just one of those things where if, you know, if I stop, I can take it out and throw it all up and then go. Yeah. But, uh, again, and it's, you know, not the greatest tripod in the world either. That's, that's going to be one of my next things I'm looking at. Yeah. But, but, uh, no, I, I have it with me, but it's just one of those times where I don't necessarily know where I'm going to get you know, that sweet spot during the magic hour or, you know, in the morning right. or anything like that. It could just be, you know, I, it could be around 2.30 in the afternoon. Oh, got to go take a picture because this right. is when I have free time. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah, definitely during the 2.30 in the afternoon kind of a time frame. you know, I might suggest the tripod isn't always going to be necessary, but it always is nice to help slow you down. It gives you a nice, more sturdy, I guess I should say, depending on what tripod you have, you know, it's usually more sturdy than just handholding. Uh, so tr some tripods, a tripod is better than no tripod, uh, oftentimes. Right. Uh, but let's get into your specific issue of, you know, you're in this city and in our conversation before we started recording, you, you mentioned that you've been to Hong Kong several times and right. I just went there this summer and I was there during the middle of their wet season, basically in August. And so okay. haze was just absolutely pervasive, but yeah. also being just along the ocean and whatnot, you just got a whole bunch of this stuff. That is where I guess my approach can be something that you may feel I'm not answering your question because, um, I'm, or I might be dodging your question because that's where I look at it and I actually start shooting other things that the city okay. might offer. But one of the things I ended up shooting on one of those days actually was Hong Kong Park. And this is uh, a natural park right in the middle of the city. So you've got mm -hmm. uh, the tall, incredibly tall skyscrapers just all around you. But given that this this hazy overcast day, the natural leaves and the, the pond and the flowers and the few birds and whatever else were there, they just come out looking really good in that light. And then you've got that uh, the potential of putting up that texture or that pattern or whatever it is you, that you have of those buildings in the background. And that can become a, a fairly successful uh, shot as well. So I would say start to think about rather than backing up and grabbing the whole spectrum of the city, maybe there's some kind of details. Maybe there's some kind of way that you can build in a different 
photograph is about the only way I can kind of um, coin it or phrase it. And, and it, it changes what we shoot. I don't know if that, sure. if that makes sure. sense. No, it does. And we, and we did do some of that. Um, during the times when I was there, I was in the military. As part of that, we are not allowed to go around by ourselves. So sure. we had to have, so we had to have a, a friend with us at all times. And he was um, supportive of me taking pictures, but didn't want to spend his whole day taking pictures either. So I kind of had to grab what I could when I could. Um, but I did get some other, some, a lot of street level stuff in some of the parks. And we did get to, um, we get, we did get to see some of that stuff too. We didn't, you know, we did go up to Victoria Peak and we went up into some, we went up into some of the observation decks and some of the towers and things like that as well. But, uh, we did do quite a bit of stuff at the street level as well. Excellent. Yeah. Because that's where, you know, if you're not in Hong Kong, you know, anywhere over in Europe, you're, you're going to get the same idea where yeah. that, that haze is, is just going to decrease the ability. And really, quite frankly, I think our eyes do a great job of kind of sort of cutting the haze because we're able, I find it anyway, I'm still able to look at and experience the beauty and I'm just like, oh, this is so awesome. But right. it also comes to the point when you have enough experience, it sounds like you do actually to say, you know what? The photos just aren't looking the way I saw and felt it. Right. And, yeah. and that can be difficult to, to kind of accept sometimes. Now, the other, the other side of that would be, what if we did, what if we were wanting to uh, capture this scene anyway? Uh, and trying to maximize what we're doing there, uh, regardless of what the light is, regardless of what the atmospheric conditions are. Describe for me a basic, so like if you're back in Hong Kong and you're up on the peak, is that one of the basic areas where you were feeling like you just didn't quite get what you wanted? That was, um, I did, in fact, that's one of the one pictures I just pulled up here was one uh, that I took up there. And it is it's just as hazy as you can leave. And then, um, actually our, sh the, the ship that I was on was anchored out in the, uh, in the Harbor. Okay. And so we had, we had to take these ferry boats in. And as we were coming in, um, we got some great skyline, um, oh, pictures yeah. in, the, in there from, from in the middle of the Harbor that you just can't get right. anywhere else. But unfortunately, again, you know, you're down there and it was, um, it was very hazy. The other, uh, the other place that I had a lot of haze issues was, was in uh, Kuala Lumpur as mm -hmm. well. Sure. Uh, they had at the, the K the KL tower, um, they have an observation deck and you're up at, I don't know, I think it's 800 feet or so and looking down over the Patronus towers and then this, the surrounding city around that. And it was just super, super hazy around there. And that was, that was very hard to deal with as well. Yeah, for sure. I can imagine so in that regard, what I would, the, the, the Patronus Towers idea that in Kuala Lumpur, while I've not specifically been there, uh, and I don't know the exact lay of the land, Hong Kong is a little easier for me to, to speak to since I've actually sure. been there. But in either scenario, I would look at to say, okay, does it make sense to zoom in on anything? And what I right. mean by that is you're going to eliminate the junk in the background that is just causing frustration and maybe you can zoom in on something. However, depending how far away it is, of course, you're going to have all that haze you're still fighting with. Maybe it can work where you're going to be able to, now when you're in an observation deck, like in Kuala Lumpur, you're talking about probably you right. don't have as much space to get back and forth and align something up in the foreground and let that hazy city be in the background. But I right. know in Hong Kong, you do have that opportunity 
because you've got uh, the road that goes around the peak. You've got the peak tower itself. You've got the road that goes down from the peak, although that's really overgrown with trees. So you're not going to have much breaking through to the city until you get way down further. So trying to find something that makes a composition where you have a layered effect is going to, I think, really allow you to have that idea of the haze, but it's not going to be an annoyance factor. It's going to be something that maybe adds something to the image, uh, but okay. it, it definitely requires some flexibility. And, and that's sure. where, you, again, you may not have that opportunity given the limited time frame that you have maybe to shoot. Now, one last thing to segue into our, into our last thing to talk about, you're a new Lightroom user. Yes. <laughs> and very the, new. The, the dehaze, there actually is a dehaze function in Lightroom. In a huge sense, I, I kind of am like, oh, I shouldn't even mention this because largely I do what I can to not use dehaze myself, but there have been times okay. where dehaze has actually been really good. And so I don't suggest it's something that you discount or anything like that, but consider doing the dehaze uh, slider there in Lightroom because as long as you're just subtle with it, it, it can actually do a pretty good job uh, in okay. some of those some of those scenarios. So that might might be your your best um, your, your best option on for some of those pictures. Uh, of course, the best that you can do when you work in Lightroom is shooting in RAW. So making sure you shoot in RAW yep. and you have those capabilities to do, push the, the RAW file a little extra further than if the camera uh, bakes everything into it in a JPEG. I have, uh, I do shoot everything in both JPEG and RAW, but to be honest with you, I've never actually uh, played with the RAW files. Well, uh, so, if you have that history of all those raw files, that's amazing because you can actually, you know, go back to those once you start learning your raw processing. I would imagine you probably have a few images in your mind where you're thinking, you know, I probably had a pretty good image there. And then you'll yeah. be able to go back and possibly at least potentially make it better uh, after you learn how to do the raw processing. And that's going to be a pretty, pretty sweet opportunity. Most folks, when they first start out, they'll just go JPEG only. And right. then, you know, what I've seen happen is they get to the point where they want to add raw. Then they get to the point where they really know what they're doing. And it's just kind of like, well, what about all those images from before? You right, know, maybe right. I could have done this, maybe I could have done that. So in one sense, you know, congratulations, you got it. Uh, you can go back and you can reprocess. That's awesome. <laughs> well, it's it's going to take a bit here. <laughs> yeah. I Any of our listeners, I'm sure can tell you, it'll definitely... Um, well, it opens your eyes for sure, but it's definitely yes. a learning process. It is it is really difficult um, to just dive in and try and get it right away. So I, I recommend definitely taking it in little chunks, little you know, little things here and there. Now you said you are a Photoshop user, so you've probably been using Bridge with Photoshop as well. Um, no, like I said, the only the only version of uh, and I know this is going to make everybody groan. The only version of uh, Photoshop that I've used is uh the original photoshop just plain old cs all right and so that from, a, from came, about 10 years ago yeah, yeah that came out i was just thinking going back it probably came out in 2005 or uh 2006 somewhere in there and uh, yeah that's that is uh an old version but with your jpegs obviously it didn't matter uh no, you, can, didn't. you can still open those and work with those yeah because lightroom does have some similarities to working in bridge so if you had some bridge experience you know that's good too uh one piece of advice that i'll end here with is to say 
Lightroom does not like you to play outside of Lightroom. So once your images are imported into Lightroom, play within the sphere of Lightroom, because if you go do things outside of Lightroom, it's going to throw you a conniption fit and start complaining. So okay. when, okay. when you dedicate yourself that way, uh, let it be your everything as it relates to managing your images, the location, all that stuff. There are okay. some caveats to that. Listen to the Photo Taco podcast, especially the ones where Jeff talks about all sorts of Lightroom this and Lightroom that. And um, he's had Victoria Bampton on as well. And that's a fantastic, she's a fantastic resource. So there's there's some great resources out there. And yeah. Uh, just, yeah, keep things in Lightroom uh, and Lightroom will largely be happy. Yeah, I have quite a few podcasts there that I need to catch up on with you guys. And then uh, I'm sure that I'm going to spend a few days uh, listening to YouTube videos and stuff. There you go. Well. Yeah. Very good. And then there's one other, I'll give a shout out to a fellow, Matt Kleskowski. He does some great uh, Lightroom stuff as well. So okay, uh, awesome. some great things to, to look up for your Lightroom training. Awesome. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I really appreciate you calling in and, and talking these things over with us on the Master Photography Podcast. All right. Thank you, Brent. Have a good day. You as well. Bye-bye. So my next guest is Wendy Gunderson. She's from Wisconsin. Wendy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And you are a lawyer uh, by trade. Is that right? I am. Yeah. Um, so, And you're a photographer, certainly. That too. And we had a question in the in the Facebook group about contracts and the, and the like. So I'm really glad, excited to have you here to talk about these kinds of details with us, uh, what we should be looking out for in contracts and the like. But let's start out just a little bit about yourself, uh, background as, as just who Wendy Gunderson is and as a photographer as well. And then we'll dive into some of those specifics as we deal with contracts. Sounds great. Um, I have been practicing law since 1990. That's 28 years. Wow. Um, I'm a, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Don't say like that. That makes me cool. that's, uh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, I'm a graduate of University of Wisconsin Law School and have been practicing here in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, I am presently a supervisor of a staff counsel office for a large insurance company um, and supervise a staff of attorneys and um, legal assistants. Uh, but for 28 years, I've represented clients in civil litigation. What that means is going to court and representing clients on a number of things from personal injury, products liability, um, contractual disputes. And in those years, represented a lot of photographers and um, joined a lot of photography groups because I've always had it in, as an interest and um, got to learn a lot about how people do business and what comes up in their businesses that's distressing. So that's kind of how this all came about. But sure. uh, in, in terms of photography, um, I didn't start actually seriously taking it up until my children were born, um, as many parents get started that way, but um, moved on and kept growing. My interest kept growing. Um, joined some local groups. I'm a um, member of the Coalition of Photographic Arts here in Milwaukee. Um, my interest spread to travel photography, so I'm now a member of the North American Travel Journalist Association, um, and I'm involved in several area groups. I have a number of websites devoted to my photography, one for um, the travel, Caribbean travel, and then one that's dedicated solely to film photography called Film Road Trip. 
And uh, my husband and I, my husband also is an attorney of 28 years practicing in civil litigation here in Wisconsin. Uh, we developed some form contracts for photographers uh, with a business we call Law for Photographers for with the number four. And since um, getting the interest in, of photography and my background as a practicing attorney, I've presented a number of seminars uh, to photographers addressing legal issues they face, including public photography and the ethics and the legal implications of that, contract form formation, copyright, licensing of images, model releases, pretty much everything that they encounter. Um, and before we begin um, going through some questions, I do, as a lawyer, as you might imagine, have some disclaimer. Of course. <laughs> I do <laughs> I do have to make it clear that um, in this discussion, it shouldn't be construed as legal advice because none is offered and no attorney-client relationship is established, um, and folks should contact an attorney in their area regarding the law and their specific circumstances, and also that the views expressed here are my own and do not represent those of my employers or law firms past or present. Sounds good. Thank you. So I think the that initial question that hopefully will just kind of get the ball rolling, it had to do with your working with your clients, a portrait client. I think in this particular case, it was a wedding client. And so kind of help us understand what are some of the things we should be looking for? You know, if, if I were a new photographer and I'm setting up my, my contract, what is the kind of thing that I should be looking out to include in that contract? Well, um, when you're starting out, I know a lot of people start, some people start without contracts and yeah. they quickly find out that they need them because some kind of conflict arises. And so then oftentimes people will turn to the internet and there are loads of free contracts out there that can get you started. And quite frankly, I think any contract's better than none. Um, but there are a lot of things that they should consider uh, as to what should be in their contract. And it really depends on how you do business. Um, generally speaking, uh, a contract defines the scope of your work and the compensation. So to form a contract, uh, you generally need, and when I say generally, I'm speaking generally in terms of the, the law, and of course all jurisdictions vary, but generally you need um, to have a contract offer, acceptance, and what's called consideration. And an offer is you as a photographer putting yourself out there, I'll shoot your wedding, I'll shoot your portrait, um, I'll give you digital images, I'll give you prints, I'll give you albums. Um, the client's acceptance part of a contract formation is when the client says, okay, I accept your offer. I want your coverage of my wedding. I want the prints. I want the album. And consideration is the, the thing of substance that changes hands. So it's not just money, but it can also be promises of what, um, what hours a photographer would have to work. What product are they providing? And so there are a lot of things that the photographer should consider uh, first, by how they do business. Uh, are you, do you work all day, no matter how many hours there are? Do you have a set number of hours? Uh, so if you're working eight and eight hours on a wedding, is it continuous? Because sometimes clients think they can take the eight hours and divide it up over, well, I'll have you for an hour here at the ceremony, and then you come back here, and now all of a sudden you're working a 15-hour day. Sure. Um, <laughs> so then if you're providing, you got to consider what you're providing in terms of uh, the product. If you're doing digital images, 
are you providing raw images and I, I uh, raw files? And I know a lot that makes a lot of photographers cringe and rightly so. Um, they think, well, I'd never turn over the raw files. I would always turn over, you know, fi- completed JPEGs. But there are some folks out there who produce raw files for their clients uh, or some clients who are pretty savvy with Photoshop or other programs and think that's what's produced by the photographer and they have sure. that expectation. So you should really give some thought when you're thinking about what goes into your contract about what am I producing? Um, am I giving raw files? If I'm giving JPEGs, um, you know, what size am I giving them? Right. Uh, and also in terms of images, how many are you producing? I mean, you may have the bride's uh, maid of honor may have gotten a thousand images from her wedding photographer. And so she expects the same thing of you. Um so things like that, if you're producing product albums, what quality of product do they select it ahead of time? Or do you pre pre-design the album? Um, can they use the images commercially or not? So can they enter them in contests or offer them to other people? I've run into circumstances where uh, photographers images were used by very large corporations to sell their wedding related product. Jewelry is the one that comes to mind. Because they got wedding images from a bride and groom who entered a contest. Wow. And the, the bride and groom didn't know they couldn't enter the contest with the image because they didn't understand the scope of their license. And, you know, that's another thing I find that is either lacking or missing from contracts is copyright provisions. Um, I, I find people, there's a misunderstanding a lot about what copyright provides when how you obtain it some people think well i only get it when i register it with the copyright office i'm like well no you don't you get the copyright copyright when you create that image and put it on some kind of tangible medium like on a uh into a digital file or on a a slice of film or however you create it in a tangible tangible medium you have the copyright to it now registering it with the, the copyright office will give you a lot of other rights that you didn't have before Um, But when you let someone else use an image, like you give someone a print, you're not transferring your copyright. You're not releasing your copyright. You may license your client, you know, have a license for your client to use that image to a certain extent. Also things you want to define by your contract. So there's a lot of things to consider. And with wedding photography, there's a lot of little details, too, that can, you know, make for misunderstandings and create problems like um, the the what if you're sick? I mean. photographers are human beings and sometimes they get ill or someone in their family dies and someone has to take their place. So I have seen, you know, we would draft up a provision that says something about, you know, you will uh, locate a substitute photographer of a similar quality to take your place, but there should be some provision for that. Sure. Um, Cancellation. (laughs) And that, that kind of goes right into the question because the person said, you know, they had the question from the prospective bride saying, what if you die? And and this <laughs> yeah. person was stumped. And it's like, um, well, I guess you could say the contract is null and void because, you know, the person who signed the contract is dead. But there should... Can't perform. Uh, yeah, yeah, you can't perform, of course. So hopefully, though, there might be some kind of other provision you could have in there that says, this would be the plan if X, Y, and Z happened. You know, if I can't perform for some reason you know, other, these other people will come into play here. Uh, you certainly touched on so many different aspects, so many different things to think about. It's almost mind boggling to 
wrap our minds around that, especially if we're uh, kind of just getting into it. You know, if we've only done three or four weddings, let's say, and we're needing to, you know, kind of up our game as it were to have this greater establishment. Uh, you had mentioned there's a lots of out, uh, opportunities out there for free contracts. Um, on your website, you have some forms, lawforphotographers.com, you have some forms. So it, are those going to be considered good starting points or how should we dissect those and understand what we're getting into? And then ad additionally to that, this sounds like it's going to be a 10-page document. Uh, it can be uh, lengthy. The, my forms aren't that long, but photographers can do some things to help um, control expectations by what they use in their advertising. Like on your website, if you put some general provisions of these are the kind of things we provide, like a uh, frequently asked question section. Sure. What do we produce? We produce images in JPEG and uh, retouching principles, like how much retouching do you do is included in the package. Um, some things you can put in that kind of uh, part of your website. Now, the important thing should be in your contract, but there's some additional guidance or help to your clients that you can put on your website that can um, help kind of ease those expectations. The hardest thing about, um, I've noticed with people getting started in wedding photography is they're managing expectations they don't know about because sure. it's your, your friend had this and you know, your, your mom says she had this when she got married. And so you have all this information that you don't even know what you're dealing with because of what they've encountered in their experience. So you try and address as, as specifically as possible, um, what you're providing. And I guess, you know, I started with a very short contract when I started representing photographers and it's grown because we hear of more problems with, here's an example, unretouching. Um, some, some clients will think that it's, you know, just the basics, crop, align things, you know, just the, adjust the color, sure. that kind of thing. Yeah. Where some people may think that, well, you know, here I've got this bulge right where my arm meets my, you know, sleeve of my dress. I expect you to be able to go into Photoshop and, and pinch that area and make it look slimmer. And so they, they may expect what is essentially hours and hours of, um, post processing. And so that's something that, um, you know, comes up in, in conflicts quite frequently. Another thing that we notice is like cancellations, weddings cancel. Sure. Um, more frequently than you'd like to think. Um, so people want their money back. And so your contract should be pretty clear about whether they get their money back under what circumstances, how soon before the wedding they cancel. Because photographers are booking these dates and they're booking them out early. If they lose it, they lose a lot of income. So they're going to try and protect themselves by putting something in their contract um, to make sure that they at least have some portion of that, um, paid for. So, um, there's a lot of expectations to manage and a lot of things that, um, can go awry. So unfortunately it does mean you need a little more detail than the one page I'm going to show up at your church and you're going to pay me this. <laughs> right. For sure. Yeah. When you get to all of these details, it also comes down to the comfort, I think, of the photographer to walk through these details too because you talked about you know misaligned expectations with what retouching means you know i instantly thought too of i've seen some stories online about 
a photographer who did some of that significant retouching where it may have pinched a certain area here or there. And then the, uh, the bride or the groom or whomever else in the family looks at it and they consider it rather an insult to have that done. And that can certainly be a problematic as well to where you think you're providing an extra good service and everyone's gonna be happy. All of a sudden you've just shot yourself in the foot because you've done something that you've totally insulted your clients and forget about referrals after that. So this is also about once you once you've crafted and certainly clarify for me where I'm what I'm saying here. But once you've crafted what it is that your expectations are and all that, it's your job to sell it, too, isn't it? And that's a problem I find is that people will find provisions on the Internet or a friend will say, oh, here's my language for my contract. I see it in Facebook. Facebook groups where people share language. Sure. And so they kind of craft it onto their contract, but they don't really understand what it means. And if you can't understand what it, what it means, certainly your client isn't going to understand what it means. And then do you really have an agreement? I mean, it should be, you should understand what's in your contract and what's involved in it enough to explain it so that they understand it. It goes both ways. I mean, a contract protects a photographer, but it protects the client as well. Um, so everybody should know and understand what's in it. And if you have something in your contract, you don't understand it's time to fix it. For sure. And maybe you can give us some advice or some thoughts on what are some of those categories where either the client or the photographer, uh, tends to not understand, or they tend to drop the ball. Is there anything along those lines you could speak to? Well, there's, a variety of problems. I've been reviewing, I started off reviewing contracts for photographers and some came with forms that I recognized and some came with very uniquely crafted things, but there's certain things we see very frequently. One is what I call the Frankenstein contract. And that is where people graft on a provision from here or a provision from there. You know, they see someone in a Facebook group who has this problem uh, with getting harassed at a wedding. So they decide, I think I need that provision about harassment. Do you guys have one? So mm. they say, oh yeah, here's mine. And they take it and they, they graft it onto their contract and it leads to inconsistencies in the agreements. So when one thing I have from my experience over the years is understanding how courts interpret contracts. Um, and, and that is they're looking for consistency because it makes it easier to understand and inconsistency will cause confusion. And when you have confusion, they hold it against the person who drafted the contract. So, um, if you you drafted the contract, it's on you. So, um, it's important to try and keep your language consistent. Um, keep your contract organized, make it understandable. If you're just spitting out some gog, you know, some legalese is what people use to, to describe it, that kind of wherefore, where art, and you don't understand what it means. It, <laughs> it's not going to, it's not easy for them or a judge to understand what it means. And ultimately a, a judge or a jury would be interpreting it. So it's sure. important to make it clear. Now, now you mentioned the inconsistencies, they'll, they'll kind of take it on to the, the person drafting it. I would imagine if the photographer were to buy a form they are still the ones that, according to the court, they're going to be the, still the ones considered drafting it. They, um, well, 
that would be between if you hired a lawyer. If you're buying a form, there's a problem with forms. And, you know, I sell a full form, so yes. uh, I can I openly admit there is a problem with them. And yes. that's the reason is, is there's really no substitute for having a lawyer. What forms help you do is they help you get started. They will help you if you go to an attorney later to have your contract reviewed. If you've got a good form together with, you know, which reflects how you do business, it's way easier. And when it's easier for a lawyer to look at it, it's less expensive because lawyers charge you by the hour to do sure, that. Yeah. So if they're looking at a, you know, uh, something you, a paragraph thing you took off the internet, they're going to have to rewrite it and start from scratch. And I know that takes a while. But if they've got a well put together agreement that they have to tweak for your jurisdiction, because the laws vary from state to state. Some, for example, some have uh, consumer protection laws that require specific language and contracts. Some have limits on the uh, interest you can charge if someone were paying late. Those are the kind of things that the lawyers would know and be able to tweak for what happens in their jurisdiction. But if you've got a good start, it'll save you money ultimately. But no one should rely on a form. It's not the end. It's it's the beginning of your relationship. And I know it's hard to think you're starting out. Do I want to spend this money on a lawyer? Um, I kind of take a story I hear over and over again from photographers and kind of turn it around. And that is photographers will say, oh, you know, I'm a professional. You can't you shouldn't hire a friend with a nice camera to shoot your wedding because you know, it'll be a horrible experience to hire an amateur. You should have a professional photographer. Well, the same thing goes with regard to your business. And if, if it's important enough for you to be a professional in, in the photography business, it's important for you to consult a professional when it comes to the legality of that business. So no form is going to make you legal. What makes you legal is consulting with your lawyer and checking back periodically with your lawyer because the laws change. But um, forms, a good form, one that's put together well, can be a great start um, and set you on the right track from the beginning. So let's let's take this in something that's uh, going to be related, but slightly tangentially different. And that is the form or the terms and conditions one would find on a website and being able to say, re referring back to that website, like say in your contract you know, how, how does that hold out as it relates to, all right, they've clicked the button, they've clicked that thing that says, I, I agree to the terms and conditions. How, how does that relate to, to what we would be able to see in a contract that says, okay, maybe it allows me to shorten the contract, but we want to make sure we reference that back. Does that make sense? And, and how I'm saying that? What I've seen um, sometimes what people do, if you have a lot of terms and conditions, you like, you have a lot of details, you offer a variety of different services and products you might want to do a separate addendum that okay. lists all your terms and conditions. The core contract can be pretty simple, but that should be an addendum incorporated into the contract um, that that will always be a part of the contract. Just being on your website is not part of your contract. Okay. What I meant in using the website is to kind of educate your client. Yeah. So when they come to you, they know, okay, this is what I'm dealing with. So when they see it in the contract, they're like, okay, I understand that. I know that they're not giving me raw files. So it's basically use your website to educate your clients. So when they come to your contract, it's easier for them to understand. But all the important terms and conditions should be in the written okay. contract that they sign. Because 
you can't just say, well, this is on my website. I mean, you can change your website every day. Right. You want to know right. that they signed understanding what those terms were. Yes. And so if we, uh, if we offered, let's say as a wedding photographer, if I offered three main different packages with different levels of service, that might be where I have a core uh, of everything that's common in the contract. And then maybe three different addendums, depending on which level of service they're looking to buy, that's the addendum that they get attached to the contract. Yeah, that's a great way to do it. Okay, cool. Now let's take it one step further. And this is going to be something like for myself and others out there. Uh, I know some of the other uh, folks here that are attached to the podcast, the hosts, they operate workshops and everything is handled online. When we say, you know, take a look at those terms and conditions, are we still kind of putting ourselves out there and we should probably have a little extra something that is that that legal signature, that legal item that says, you know, this is what I agreed to? Oh, when you're signing up for a workshop? Is yeah. that what you're saying? Yeah, like if I if I have a client signing up for a workshop, I've got that terms and conditions out there, but there's no uh, there's no formal meeting like you do have with a wedding. There's no review of the contracts like you have with a wedding. It's all done online and it's just, you know, they paid the money. They're counting on you showing up. You know, what's the the difference in if there is a difference in the legalities there where we don't have an actual signed contract per se? Actually, when I've attended work, photography workshops um, after I signed up and um uh, paid the money. They actually sent me a contract to sign. <laughs> so that oh, might be those. something you might want to consider. Yeah. yeah. Um, I actually, I hosted a couple workshops too with brought in a, um, a, uh, well regarded wedding photographer to come into our area to, to do a workshop for folks. And so we had, we coordinated not only a contract with, for the workshop, but also with the venues we shot at because sure. There are some that require that and have special restrictions on the images that you create. Okay. Um, so in, in terms of selling your workshop, um, you here, I'll give you an example. What I do is on law for photographers, if you come to purchase the wedding and portrait photography package, there are disclaimers on the website. But before you can purchase, I actually have an affirmative area where you have to affirmatively accept the terms and conditions okay. so that I know that people read it and understand it before they go through and pay. Right. Um, and then it's contained in all the materials as well that are produced. But um, if you want to make sure that people read it, that's a good, now people can still skim over it and do whatever right. they want, but right. at least they had to affirmatively check that they were <laughs> willing to ignore that. <laughs> right. Right. And I do have that checkbox where they have to affirm that and i'm just kind of broadening it to because i know our friend nick page and then connor has done some workshops uh jeff has you know done some at the uh retreat the create photography retreat and when i go when i've done that you know i have that item that they sign there on site it's just that uh this idea of doing one uh even beforehand once they make that initial payment i can see uh having the contract make sense so I could maybe would send them a self-addressed stamp envelope or something like that so they can easily sign it and return it to me. Yeah, I know a lot of um, photographers use digital documents. Sure. You know, we sign things online too. Yeah, there's plenty of, whether it's digitally signing PDFs or lots of other ways of doing it for sure. Well, Wendy, I really appreciate you being here and helping us understand not only the importance, but some of the details about these contracts and the idea of getting a contract out there 
And um, yeah, just thank you for being here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I did want to offer a discount yeah. for your listeners. If oh, sure. anyone, if anyone's interested in purchasing our wedding and portrait photography package, um, they can get 30% off by using the code master, M-A-S-T-E-R. Fantastic. And it ex- expires at the end of the year. Excellent. So they, they go to your website, they type in master uh, at checkout and they get 30% off the, you said it was wedding and portrait photographer package. Right. It can be be combined with any other coupons or offers, but that'll get you 30% off the list price. 30% is pretty good. So yeah, thank you. That's great. I hope someone will, lots of people take advantage of that. Well, thank you for having me. It was a, it was a lot of fun. (laughs) You bet. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. If you're anything like me and you're looking for a professional printing service to turn your photos into canvas prints, you want someone who's reliable, who's using the highest quality canvas, and who is affordable. Well, good news, Royal Canvas is all three of those things. They print in 11 colors, use premium canvas that doesn't crack when it's stretched, and they ship super fast, usually within two or three days of ordering. Plus, if you ever need to contact them, you'll be talking to a real person who can help you out with accurate information and resolve any problems quickly. With Royal Canvas, you're getting a premium quality canvas, archival ink, and an expert stretch. So go ahead and give it a try. Go to royalcanvas.com master and you'll get 40% off of a single canvas print and an additional 10% off of poster or metal prints. Or if you'd like a sample, feel free to email service at royalcanvas.com and they'll send you a free canvas color swatch. That's royalcanvas.com master for 40% off of a single canvas print and an additional 10% off of poster or metal prints. My next caller is Roger Dahlman, and we're talking about travel buddies versus being a loner sometimes. So, Roger, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brent. Glad to be here. You bet. So when I put this call out there uh, to have people volunteer, basically, to show up and be on the show, you had mentioned something travel-related. Of course, that's right in my wheelhouse, but... What exactly do you mean by travel buddies? What is it that you're really trying to to get across here with this idea? Well, I, I'm a travel and people photographer, and I like to go somewhere all the time. And you go out there a lot of the time, you're by yourself. Uh, for example, my wife loves my photography. She does not want to be around me when I'm out doing photo geekery. Yeah, so I'm always looking for someone to go out with me. It's more fun. When you travel with somebody, it's, uh, you can go out and get tips from each other. Uh, if you use the same camera equipment, you can share gear. Um, and and you just it's just more enjoyable. And if you take a fellow photographer, then, you know, you're going to both be open to getting up early, uh, staying up till, out till sunset or a little after, and, and just going someplace weird. It doesn't have to be far. Many of my trips, I try to go somewhere every, at least every month. Many of my trips are just day trips uh, or maybe one overnight. And a couple of times we've planned entire weeks and I've gone out with friends. Yeah, good. So you're really, your intent is really just to say these are the benefits, you know, encouraging people to actually do this and not just necessarily be loners when they're out there shooting. Correct. Um, it's it's fun. You get a group together. I'm in, uh, I've been leading photo walks for uh, 
the Kelby Worldwide Photo Walk. I led one for 500px. Um, I like to get people together, uh, chit chat about photography stuff, uh, compare photos. You know, it's it's just a a lot more fun to go with somebody than it isn't. And most of the time, it's as I said, it's highly beneficial. Every now and then, you'll come against uh, somebody that. Maybe you won't want to invite back. Sure. There's always <laughs> a risk, not, I guess. Yeah, it's a risk, especially if you don't know somebody or they don't know you. Right. Um, but I've had uh, no bad experiences so far, and I've been doing it for years now. So you tend to go out uh, and invite folks that you just meet online as far as in these photo groups or from other podcasts or other just you know, how, how is it that you're meeting these folks? Uh, I, I am not shy. Um, so I will go out and introduce myself. I'll put out calls. Uh, as I was telling you earlier, I, uh, earlier this year, uh, a man that I had met once who had told me he wanted to go do some of the things that I've been doing, I gave him 36 hours and we drove 15 hours down to the Rolex 24 hour race. I had tickets already inside the uh, park, and he was a beginning photographer, and we had a great time. Uh, you know, we spent 15 hours in the car together, uh, 24 hours at the race, and 15 hours coming back. Wow. Uh, but it worked out. And you gave him 36 hours notice, you said? 36 hours notice. Uh, the person who, would, who had told me that they wanted to go with me had to back out at the last minute. Oh, no. And so I was stuck with a ticket, and I said, well, you know what? Scott had called me. Let's give it a try. All I could say was no. I was going whether or not I sure. had a travel compart partner, but uh, right. it was much more fun with him. So I'm curious about this race, just if we can go off on a tiny tangent here. Tell me about this race and shooting this race. Uh, well, I went... Uh, a couple of years ago, for the first time, I was a guest of the Porsche Club of America and shot inside the Daytona Raceway, which is not set up for like you see it on the stock cars. It's got chicanes and curves. And uh, you, if you can actually stay inside the race course and you can move around and with the proper lenses, you can get all kinds of photos. I've got plenty of them on my Instagram. I'm a big race fan as far as any kind of race, horse races, uh, car races, you know. It, so it was a lot of fun to travel down there. And so when I went back, I with the one time I had met him, I told him I had been. He's a Corvette owner, said he loves speed, and said he would like to go with me sometime. And then a couple months later, uh, the person who had I bought the ticket for backed out, and that's how we went. But if you ever want to go down there, you can get uh, positions inside the course, and you can walk anywhere you want to. And if you go down um, by the fences, you can get some very close shots. Very cool. And it's a 24-hour race, so basically they have teams that are swapping out drivers, I guess. Is that Correct. how it goes? Yeah, they're swapping out drivers. Um, and they run rain or shine. Mm. So the first year, I got my wish, and we got a little bit of rain. And so I've got lots of mist coming off of the cars, which makes for a really good shot. Oh, I and bet. then last year, my project was panning. 
Okay. Uh, so I was, you know, it's it's quite a challenge to paint a car that's driving by at 150 miles an hour. No doubt, but you do get quite a bit of practice. Yeah, I had 24 hours, hours of constant <laughs> zoom, zoom, going back and forth. Yeah, and 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 that's what it took because, like I said, I'm a people and travel photographer, not a sports photographer. Right. Um, and I needed the practice. <laughs> oh, sure. I got some. Now, what kind of lens are you using? Like a seventy to two hundred for this, or what kind of lens are you doing for a track like this? Well, you can use the seventy to two hundred, and that'll get you because you're right on the fence. You can get very close. Okay. But uh, I was using um, a two hundred to four hundred that I rented. Mm. Um, I've rented that lens a couple of times from lens rentals. Um, I've rented it for Alaska, uh, you know, and it's a great lens. I don't use it enough to justify paying the cost of that no so we're talking the canon 200 to 400 no i'm a nikon, nikon okay i was canon film and moved to nikon for digital okay but uh yeah there there are quite a few uh ways to use the lens um the usually in daytona it's bright enough that you could use easily use the uh 5.6 nikon which is quite a bit cheaper yeah um but it's I have shot some races with just the seventy to two hundred, but since I had whenever I can get that long lens, I of course take that because you can get right in on it. Yeah, and like you said, those lenses are not cheap. I uh, borrowed one. I'm a CPS member with Canon, and I borrowed one uh, about a year or so ago, and it's definitely a sweet lens. But at around what is it, twelve thousand dollars or so, it's like. It's not everyone's lens, that's for sure. No, it's not. And the Nikon currently, I think, is a little cheaper, uh, but it's just cheap as a relative word. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> so tell me about some other experiences you've had where you've gone with people and maybe some of these photo walks that you've organized. Uh, tell me about some of those. Well, a couple of years ago, we, in fact, two weeks before the fires, uh, my my shooting partner, my regular shooting partner, and I went for a week down to uh, Smoky Mountains, um, rented a place down there, a little cabin, and went all over the park. That was planned out. I've done. I did another one last year with uh, a friend from work, and she and I spent a week in Maine, uh, along the coast, shooting. Um, the photo walks they happen every year in October. Uh, the 500px one's usually a couple months earlier than that, um, but we also do local walks because uh, I would I, I teach sometimes with the uh, local photo group here, and so we'll we'll do walks. We've done the uh, cherry blossoms down in uh, Washington D.C. Nice, and we've done um, we usually do one in December in the small town where the camera club is uh, located. So. We, we have several organized events, and then I'll go out since I don't rely on photography for my for my living. Uh, but I always need new people to shoot. Uh, sometimes I'll just take people out, and we'll go on a photo walk, and I'll shoot some pictures for them, and they let me post them on the blog, and I give them some free photos. You know, so that's sweet. That's a lot cheaper than paying me for shooting them for a day. Right, that no doubt. 
Yeah, I can certainly resonate with what you're saying about, uh, you know, having someone tag along with you. Uh, there's a fellow that lives up a couple hours north of me. We always like to go, uh, if we can, we'll coordinate our conferences. He's employed uh, in a position somewhat similar to mine as well. So we have a lot of overlap in the conferences we can go to. And so over the years, boy, it's probably been five or seven years now that we've been able to do this a couple, three or four times. Uh, you know, we've been to Boston and then the Las Vegas twice, and I can't think of the other one, uh, but where we've just gone to these conferences and then we'll, you know, be able to head out and go shooting in the evening when the conference is over. Or we've also gone and shot waterfalls here in Washington state or down to the coast or something like that. And it can definitely be a, a good thing. It helps you get out, helps you um, spread your wings a little bit and hopefully learn a little extra something more too while you're out there. Yeah. I. I travel a lot for work too, and I never, I never go without a camera, yeah. uh, because right, uh, just like you said, whenever you, whenever you're done, uh, instead of going partying or spending all your per diem on a, a fancy meal, I just go out walking and see what I can see. You betcha. Now, have there been times where you have gone solo and you've either just completely regretted it, or you're kind of like, you know, this has been actually really good. Is can you think of a scenario that would fit either of those situations? Well, the the it's almost always good. I just did a sabbatical from work um, and spent a week in Ireland. Mm. Um, that I that I did that was fantastic. No doubt. Um, and you were by yourself. Yeah, for, for a lot of it. And then uh, I've also done. Uh, I have gone to places. Uh, we're close to the Shenandoah Mountains, and I've gone up there uh, to the Shenandoah Valley and uh, paid to spend the night so I could be up early, and, you know, the weather was awful. Uh, so I guess that's about the worst experience I've ever <laughs> had. I've, had. I've been pretty lucky. I mean, I there's always something to shoot. Yeah. It might not be what you wanted to shoot, um, but with – between the blog and um, I'm a fairly, re, you know, almost weekly poster on Instagram, you, you got to have pictures or you're not going to post. Yeah, for sure. I, I can certainly identify with that. Uh, I think you said you're a teacher. Well, I, I, I no, I'm a consultant uh, here in D.C., but I okay. teach at the local photo group for uh, Photoshop and Lightroom. I've, I've had Lightroom before. It came out. Uh, I was one of the beta testers um, before, when I was traveling around the military, um, I, you know, shooting film. Yeah. I had boxes of three by five cards so that I could tell all my negatives were labeled, and I could tell you where I shot it, when I shot it, and who was there. It was all written down on three by five cards. Wow. So, so the organization capabilities of of the new dams uh, are almost as important to me as you know the the basic development stuff that you can do in for sure being able to keep track of that stuff is hugely important and i can remember my transition from film to digital basically i never looked back it's just so much easier uh i, I got that first digital camera and it was just so much easier to just deal with everything and not have to worry about well slides and you know, shuffling things back and forth and, and all that stuff. But I, I can tell you one thing about shooting slide is that 
I really learned, I think, to edit super well. And that is to say, I threw away a lot of stuff. And I still throw away a lot of stuff because back then I just didn't want to manage that physical piece of film and that little piece of cardboard and it would fill up my file cabinet. And nowadays it's just, I've kind of gone the same route and said, you know, I don't need it. If it's not going to be useful to me, I just don't need it. So I trash it. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm a, a harsh editor uh, of my own work. If I don't, if I don't like it, there's no reason to keep it. I just delete it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, for me, I think I, I coined the the idea one time saying, you know, if it satisfies something, you know, personally where it has some kind of personal value, for instance, my family, of course, I'm going to keep that. If it has a commercial value, of course, I'm going to keep that. And then if it has some kind of artistic value for me personally, I'll keep that. But otherwise, you know, for the most part, I don't shoot uh, the family photos. Uh, I'm out shooting these other things. And then, yeah, it's just like pull out the saber and start slashing when it comes to editing those photos because they're just taking up precious hard drive space. And and um, also the filtering you have to go through when you're like, oh, someone wants an image. I think I know where that is. If you got 10 times more images to filter through, uh, you know, that could be a problem too when you're trying to find that image and be efficient. Yeah. Organization can be a, a troublesome thing for people who aren't organized. Um, I keyword everything uh, and have smart uh, collections that tell me things that aren't keyworded if I get busy or something like that. And I'll go back when I'm, you know, like this weekend when it's a rainy weekend and I'll catch up. Sure. Uh, so I, I know a lot of people use collections. I like collections, but my photos all have keywords. Yeah, that's the only thing I've been disciplined enough to keyword is when I submit stuff to my agent because they obviously require it. Uh, for my all my other stuff that I end up keeping, uh, it will it will have basic keywords, but it won't have like those nice detailed stuff. Uh, one thing I do like though, since I'm a travel photographer, Lightroom has that mapping module, and I can just click into that if I know where something was from, I can easily find it that way. Uh, and I usually know, and I also categorize all my images from location, based on location too. So it's not that difficult for me to find things without searching the keywords. Yeah, I have a GPS that goes on my camera and then I've gone back and used the map module for anything that I took that didn't have a GPS or that I didn't turn it on because sure. it takes a lot of battery power uh, or it was a scanned slide or photograph. Um, and I have a smart collection tell me what doesn't have GPS on it. Yeah. Excellent. I enjoy looking at the maps to see, you know, all the places I've been and uh, look for places I haven't been and plan trips for there. Sweet. So I'm curious, uh, where might you be uh, going next uh, as far as either your own personal shoot or uh, joining up with someone? Do you have something planned for either like later this month or as we get into the winter season and you've got maybe something planned to go out and shoot some of the snowfall that might be happening in your area? I hope we get snowfall. Um, I intend to uh, hit the Shenandoah Valley for colors, fall color. Okay. Um, I, I just returned last weekend from Cleveland. So I, I, w I was down there up, well up there. And um, I, I have uh, 
a trip to Pennsylvania planned with the kids and uh, grandkids for December. Very good. Sounds excellent. Well, Roger, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about the benefits of traveling with people and learning from them as well. That's kind of the biggest thing, making connections and being able to learn more and improve in our photography. It is. And thanks for having me on, Brett. And I hope hopefully sometime we can shoot together. That would be fantastic. Yes, sounds really good. Anytime you're out here or definitely um, if I ever make a post on the Facebook group or wherever, if I remember to, to contact you directly, occasionally I make it out your way. Uh, not too frequently. It's only about 3,000 miles away. <laughs> yeah, it's a ways away. All right. Take care. All right. Bye.